This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors of Michigan politics and government. As we know, the book of Exodus tells us that a biblical plague of locusts was one of the punishments that fell upon Egypt for enslaving the Jewish people. Ever since, there have been numerous plagues that have befallen various states and nations over the centuries, and surely Michigan must feel we are dealing with such a plague in 2020, not the least because we're feeling more and more like slaves ourselves. Not only have we had to deal with the coronavirus, but now the dams have broken, literally. The Tittabawassee River smashed through the Edenville Dam northwest of Bay City, breached the Sanford Dam, and cascaded through downtown Midland, engulfing it in around 38 feet above flood level of water on Wednesday. Governor Gretchen Whitmer declared an emergency, and State Representative Jason Wentworth, who may be the next Speaker of the State House of Representatives, asked her to declare one for Aranac and Gladwin counties as well. No word yet on his request. How about COVID-19? Well, deaths have surpassed 5,000 in Michigan at this point, and the caseload is well over 54,000, largely as a result of increased testing. The most interesting statistic this week was the finding that about 40% of all deaths from coronavirus are in people age 80 and above, and nearly 70% above age 70. Most strikingly, 70, excuse me, 95% of all deaths are in people over age 50. Think about that. Meanwhile, no week can pass without President Donald Trump, who visited Ypsilanti Thursday. Before he arrived, he tweeted out a dig at Governor Whitmer, expressing hope that she will free the people of Michigan to help combat the floods. Then he blasted Jocelyn Benson as a rogue Secretary of State for saying she was preparing to send out some seven and a half million absentee ballots to voters statewide in anticipation of the August primary and November general elections. He hinted he may withhold federal money to help pay for the elections if that is not corrected, except Trump got it wrong. She's not sending out actual ballots. She's sending out applications for ballots, as she reminded him, and as a couple of Republican secretaries of state are doing in various other Midwestern states. Still, some Republican legislators questioned Benson's legal authority to do that, and others pointed out that the voter rolls contain tens of thousands of names that are dead or fraudulent. But Attorney General Dana Nessel, the third member of what I call the horsewomen of the apocalypse who are giving Republicans nightmares, got in the final dig at Trump. Nessel said, and I'm quoting, no, we won't arrest you 
if you and your entourage in Ypsilanti do not wear face masks, but please do. It's state law, unquote. And then she added, if you don't wear these face masks, do not come back. I plan to arrest people who own any business who hosts you. Now, also, uh, she must have been pleased, this is Dana Nessel, that Capitol Police ticketed seven barbers who were cutting hair on the Capitol lawn. Meanwhile, there were still two more decisions in favor of Governor Whitmer on the question of whether she can issue her emergency orders ad infinitum without agreement from the Michigan legislature. She says she can. They say she cannot. And now two court of claims judges, Michael Kelly and Cynthia Stevens, have agreed with Governor Whitmer and rejected suits brought by, in one case, a group called United for Liberty and the other from the Michigan legislature. This decision, or these decisions, I should say, will undoubtedly go to the state Supreme Court, as will all the others, to be decided when everything is behind us, and it won't make any difference to what's going on now, only maybe in the future. Also, an important bill actually moved forward in the Michigan legislature to allow college athletes to be paid for certain activities like tutoring other athletes and endorsing products for the first time in Michigan history. The sponsors of House Bills 5217 and 5218, Republican Brant Iden and Democrat Joe Tate, got Michigan's colleges and universities to agree to support the bills if the effective date was postponed until 2022. And hey, remember that decision by a three-judge panel of federal judges I told you about last week? that said the state must pay millions of dollars to Detroit schools to help students there to achieve literacy? Well, hold that. The full Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals at the federal level stayed the three-judge panel's decision and said they will hear this case in bank, which means maybe up to some two dozen judges. Stay tuned. And what about Michigan's August primary and November general election? Are the qualifications for that clear by now? Who's going to be on the ballot? Last week, we thought we knew, but no. That's still being battled out in federal court over a very obscure standard that almost nobody can agree on. Stay tuned on that, too. There's still a chance that the politicians and courts have so bungled this issue that the August primary will have to be postponed. I would say that's all I'm going to talk about, and believe me, I whittle this list way down so more people won't tune us out than already have. I'll just add a couple of other things. Governor Whitmer did lose a court battle in Shiawassee County when a local circuit judge, Matthew Stewart rejected Dana Nessel's attempt to close down barber Carl Mankey. 
the world's most famous barber. We could call him the demon barber of Main Street, uh, who has been cutting hair since May 4th in defiance of the governor's executive order. Also, going back to Midland, we'll just mention that Governor Whitmer did tour the Midland area after the flood from the broken dams. And she said somebody has got to be held accountable for this. These dams are owned by a private company. And she said, I do not believe any public infrastructures in Michigan should be owned by private entities. The state should basically have control over that. Now, I will say that the owners of the dam claimed that if the state had let them keep the water level low as they wanted to, then the dams would not have broken. The state rejected that claim, saying that was not the aim of the owners of the dams to lower the water level. It was to prevent ice forming in the winter, which they would have to melt with special extra equipment that would cost money. So that battle continues. I'm going to be back in a minute with our first guest, and we'll continue this conversation mainly involving the coronavirus, but a little electoral politics thrown in for good measure. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are very fortunate to have with us today Rich Studley, who is the longtime president and CEO of the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to The Political Insider, Rich Studley. Hi, Bill. Glad to be with you. Okay, Rich Studley, as you and I and everybody in Michigan knows, the state's economy at this point is in a shambles because of the governor's executive orders and reaction to the coronavirus. I just want to ask you, broadly speaking, did it have to be this bad? Well, Bill, I don't think anyone could have anticipated as we uh, move into spring and summer that we would be faced with a uh, a national uh, crisis in terms of public health. Uh, The COVID-19 pandemic is something we'll probably all remember for a long time. But the fact is that other states have done a better job protecting lives and livelihoods. Uh, Like you, I've been around Lansing for a while. Governor Whitmer is the sixth governor that I've had the privilege to work with. They're all different and extraordinary people. Uh, We've been very clear at the Michigan Chamber that the governor's first stay-at-home order was timely and reasonable. The challenge is with the second and subsequent orders, especially when stay-at-home became a sudden decision, a unilateral decision by the governor, to lock down the entire state. Um, That was an extreme measure. You might have been able to justify it to slow or halt the spread of COVID-19, especially in Detroit and in Wayne County. But again, other Governors in other states, nearby states like Indiana and Ohio, for example, have done a better job protecting lives and livelihoods without doing such 
severe and deep damage, financial damage to working families and job providers across the state. It was announced a few days ago that Michigan's unemployment rate is now 22.7%. 22 22.7% over a million Michiganders have been forced to file for unemployment benefits in, in just the past two months. The impact of the governor's later orders have been devastating. Well, you mentioned other states have had their different approaches to the coronavirus uh, with executive orders and other things that they've done. Uh, so I gather from what you're saying, Michigan is almost kind of like an outlier in terms of the depth, severity, and length of the governor's executive orders. Uh, is that really what's happened here in Michigan that's made our damage so severe? It is fair to say uh, that for several weeks now, uh, really for over a month, Michigan has been an outlier. Governor Whitmer, um, no doubt with good intentions, uh, imposed uh, one of the most onerous statewide economic lockdown orders in the country and then has done everything she can to keep those orders in place for as long as possible. Other governors have been more measured, more moderate, uh, more targeted in their response. The statewide economic lockdown uh, essentially uh, put everyone in Michigan in in handcuffs uh, when it's now increasingly apparent that, uh, for the most part, what we have had uh, is a regional problem in different parts of the state. Well, what does it look like going forward? She's now started to gradually relax some of her order language, particularly in northern Michigan, but she's estimating that maybe she'll extend the order that is due to go out of effect on May 28th for another week or more? Uh, Do you think that's going to happen? What should the governor, in your opinion, in the business community's opinion, what should she do at this point, given where we are? Well, Bill, the challenge is, uh, the honest answer to your question is, no one knows. There is only one person in the entire state of Michigan who knows what might happen next, and that is the governor. I don't think anyone could have imagined after the initial stay-at-home order, which everyone thought was temporary, that might be in place for 30 or 45 or even 60 days. Certainly lawmakers in 1945 couldn't have imagined when they wrote the law giving the governor uh, powers to deal with an emergency that a governor would shut down the entire state and then seek to keep those orders in place. Uh, without any input from the legislature for months at at a time. Uh, We're now in a situation where I think the governor has issued over 90 executive orders, more than one a day. Part of the problem uh, with the executive orders, the way they have been drafted in Michigan, in comparison with other states, is in other states the legislature has had input. In other states the orders are more detailed, more specific, more clear. We have a pattern now of 90 executive orders that are vague and restrictive. Uh, We have moved to unilateral state government when we have three separate and independent branches of government. We have moved to government uh, by press conference, government by executive order, government by frequently asked questions. We now have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of FAQs that the administration has been uh, required to issue to clarify 
uh, the endless stream of executive orders. Today in Michigan, it's very unclear to many employers uh, what will happen next. You know, um, as an entrepreneur yourself, that economic uncertainty is a job's killer. How can you develop a business plan when you don't know if you'll be allowed to reopen uh, next week or next month or next year? Another challenge we've had with the administration is the tendency for the governor and the administration to move the goalposts. Uh, Everyone in Michigan was told initially the executive order was necessary to slow or or halt the spread of COVID-19. Then we were told that the goal was to flatten the curve. Then uh, we were told uh, that even after the curve was flattened, the executive orders need to remain in place until there is a vaccine. Uh, And so uh, there's a tremendous amount of unnecessary confusion uh, that has had a negative impact on working families and on job providers. This has been tough for major corporations, large and successful, well-run businesses. It's even harder if you are a small business owner or the manager of a seasonal operation and you don't know from one day to the next whether you're open or closed and if you are allowed to reopen uh, how will the uh, executive orders be enforced? Well, Rich Dudley, have the people of Michigan been so frightened at this point that even if the governor decided, okay, let's gradually open everything up, uh, people are going to be, number one, afraid to even come back to work if they're employees, and patrons, customers, consumers are going to be afraid to go to traditional places of business because of the threat of coronavirus. Bill, uh, I think you make a very good point. Uh, To be fair, uh, one of the biggest challenges we face going forward is fear and anxiety and uncertainty. One thing that no one could have anticipated nationally is that the national news media and some politicians at at the national level would spend the last six weeks uh, frightening the hell out of everyone. Um, uh, I've suggested to our members and employees that whether you're watching CNN or Fox News, a good thing to do is to turn off the news, uh, take care of yourself, take care of your family, and know that we will get through this together, that the underlying fundamentals of Michigan's economy uh, are strong, and and that we're not going to all die tomorrow. Rich Studley, you've given a good sum up of where we stand in Michigan right now, what's happened and why. And we'll just have to wait and see what happens going forward. Thank you so much, Rich Studley, President and CEO of the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, for being our guest. Thank you, Bill. Stay well, and we'll get through this together. We'll be back in a second with guests. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are lucky to have on the line with us Bill Jelano, who is a former chairman of the Libertarian Party in Michigan, and he was the Libertarian candidate for governor in 2018. Bill Jelano, thanks for being with us. Glad I could be with you, Bill. Well, I just want to ask a question about the uh, inimitable Justin Amash. <laughs> the, a uh, congressman from the 3rd Congressional District in Michigan, on the west side of Michigan, um, who last summer deserted the Republican Party, said he was going to be an independent, but then most recently said uh, he was uh, exploring running 
for the nomination to be the Libertarian nominee for president this year nationally. This lasted a few days of newspaper and press media speculation about what might happen next. And then next thing we know, Justin Amai says, well, no, I'm not going to do that. We don't know what he's going to do next, but I guess I'm asking you, realistically, did Justin Amash really have a chance to be nominated as the Libertarian presidential nominee this year? Well, I certainly think it could have been possible had he really presented himself as ready to go run the kind of vigorous campaign that Gary Johnson did four years ago. Um, I don't think he really presented any opportunity to do that. And then, you know, just speaking just for myself and just my own view of looking at the party is, you know, we've had several people who have dropped out of the Republican Party. I mean, even Gary Johnson, although he he really was more of an independent in New Mexico, um, had been a Republican. And my own read of the tea leaves is that there's a, a yearning within the party ranks to run someone who is a bit more... Uh, grounded in the objectivist philosophies, you know, those things that Ayn Rand and others uh, have spoke about, Hayek. And uh, I, I think that maybe Justin realized that uh, the, the internal dynamics of the party were such that he's unlikely to have been successful. And um, given his brand, he's never lost an election in Michigan, either for the State House or for Congress. Um, you know, he may have evaluated that it would be damaging for him to uh, actually lose a nomination, especially in a in a minor party race. Yeah, because there's real question about whether Justin Amash really was a libertarian or is a libertarian, whether he actually abides by the libertarian philosophy. I mean, maybe there was a feeling among libertarians he's just using us, using the libertarian party to advance his own personal agenda. Yeah, I you know, I've certainly had uh, political disagreements with with Justin and I, you know, one of the things that I've tried to say is um a lot of people say the same thing about me, <laughs> that, you know, that without, you know, extremely strong adherence to certain fundamental values that you don't belong in the party. I think most of us, you know, the reasonable people, would, would certainly welcome someone like Justin and maybe continue to have dialogue with him about those things in which we have disagreement. Um, you may know I ran in the race, uh, same race with him for uh, Congress back in 2012. And attempted to engage him on some of those very specific things. And uh, I, I just think that there is room in the Libertarian Party for a wide range of thinking. Um, but at the same time, I think the broad base of the party continues to adhere to certain fundamental principles. Uh, and um, I think that some of Justin's views are at odds with that. Others, I think, are, are perfectly in line. Do you think it's possible that Justin Amash might try to run as a libertarian in the 3rd Congressional District against the Republican and Democratic nominees this November? Well, personally, I hope so. I, I think it would be a great conversation piece for more people to have an opportunity to be exposed to libertarian ideas. That's always been my objective, and even in those situations where I have disagreements with the party. I try to be outspoken in terms of what those differences might be. Um, You know, we're not the kind of political party that demands adherence. You know, we don't have a whip sitting at the top of the (laughs) top of the group saying, you got to do this or you got to do that. But but clearly, if your uh, your viewpoints on certain fundamental issues are are at odds, I think that's going to make it more difficult. And, uh, I you know, I tried to say to others who have asked me this question, 
um, that I didn't personally believe that Justin had any more chance of becoming our nominee for president than I would. <laughs> and uh, simply because both of us have those certain views that the, the real hardcore group uh, objects to. And I, as a someone who's been in that sphere, I've personally tried to just get over that. And, and Justin has too. I've had lunch with him. I think he's a great guy. I don't agree with him on certain things, but um, our party needs to be welcoming to top-level people who are thoughtful, even if they don't necessarily agree on everything on the checklist. Bill Jelano, what about the Libertarian Party timetable here in Michigan and nationally? I mean, aren't you going to nominate people by convention here in Michigan? You don't necessarily have to adhere to signature on petition requirements like Republicans and Democrats, and they're still thrashing that out right now. Um, when is your state convention scheduled? Where is it going to be here in the state and nationally? Well, as you know, uh, just because of the current situation, um, there are some tentative matters as to whether or not uh, an in-face, face-to-face meeting is going to be possible. Tentatively, we're planned for uh, a convention in July, um, at up in Gaylord, and uh, you know, hopefully that will be able to come together just based on whether or not our you know the the matters we're struggling with uh, with COVID nineteen uh, prevent that. But at this moment, that's still a plan A. Um, I can tell you that the national party is actually engaging this weekend in a uh, Zoom meeting to handle many of the affairs of of what's going to be going on. And uh, I don't know how extensive that will end up being. I do think it becomes uh, something that, um, having never done it before, we're all kind of trying to figure out what that's going to look like. Um, But a lot of people are working really, really hard to, um, as far as the the presidential nomination is concerned. And then with regard to um, our state candidates, of course, that has to occur before the August primary. And so that meeting is tentatively scheduled for July 18th at the Treetops Resort up in Gaylord. And uh, if that occurs, um, if it doesn't occur in a face-to-face manner, I'm sure we'll have our uh, a Zoom meeting or something of that uh, caliber that day. What about the U.S. Senate seat that's up for grabs this year? Between incumbent Gary Peters, a Democrat, probably the Republican nominee is going to be John James. He has primary competition, but he should win that. Do the Libertarians plan to run somebody for the U.S. Senate? And can you do that at your convention in July and then they would just appear on the November general election ballot? Well, that's how that always works for parties that are designated as minor parties, which this year is going to be everyone except the Democrats and Republicans. And so all the minor party, um, and you know we've got six of them, um, have the opportunity to nominate someone at their convention as long as it occurs before the August primary. And um, I you know, personally don't have any inside knowledge as to how that might happen. I, I, have, a, I have some uh, thoughts that perhaps... Um, Brian Ellison, who is someone who's made some uh, uh, notoriety due to running for Congress back in 2018, he's actually a candidate for president, and um, should he not be successful in that, I think there may be an opportunity for someone like that to run for Senate. Um, and, and there are others that may step forward that uh, I'm unaware of at this moment. Um, but certainly uh, it has been the position of our party to have someone in the race so that folks who do not wish to support one of the two major parties um, have the opportunity to vote for someone that they believe in. And uh, it is uh, 
part and parcel to why myself and so many thousands of other people have gotten into third-party politics is the frustration with the two-party system. What about the presidential nominee? I mean, obviously in 2016, Gary Johnson was a factor. He got about three and a half, three point seven percent, I think, of the national vote. Jill Stein, the nominee of the Green Party, got about a percent and a half. Between them, they got about five percent or more. And many people feel that really decided the election, particularly in the swing states like Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. Uh, Who is likely to be the presidential nominee for the Libertarians this year? Well, I think there's any number of people who could emerge. Um, I think some of the more notable names that uh, people might uh, be familiar with. Um, Jacob Hornberger is a longtime activist from Virginia and was a notable uh, candidate in the race in 2000 when Harry Brown ran for the second time. Um, He is someone who has broad support in the party in the sense that he has strong objectivist thinking. Um, I personally have not decided yet. Yeah, honestly, uh, Bill Jelano, we could speculate about this for a long time. It's going to be hard to get somebody with the name of Gary Johnson. Thank you so much, Bill Jelano, former Libertarian Party chairman in Michigan and candidate for governor in 2018. Bill Jelano, thank you. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. Same to you. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have a real live candidate on the other line with us. She is Gina Johnson. She is a businesswoman with 20 years of experience in the healthcare industry. Gina Johnson, welcome to The Political Insider. Thank you, Mr. Ballinger. Wonderful to be here with you. Okay, well, um, I'm just going to tell people you are running for the Republican nomination in the 71st State House District. Now, that is a district just west of Lansing that includes almost all of Eaton County, except, I believe, for like three townships in the southeast corner. You don't have Eaton Rapids, let's say, but you got just about everything else. You've got Bellevue, Olivet, Charlotte, which is the county seat, Sunfield, Mulligan, Grand Ledge, Diamonddale, and the big one, Delta Township, which is a very big township abutting the city of Lansing in the northeast corner of Eaton County. And you are running in a primary where the woman, Christine Barnes, who ran two years ago, in an open seat race lost to the incumbent Democrat now, Angela Whitwer, and you've got to get by not only Christine Barnes, but an incumbent Democrat in this seat. And that's a tall order. So I'm asking you, why did you decide to run? How are you going to run? How are you going to win? Um, all wonderful questions. Yeah, we have a tough race here, um, but it's it's a salt-of-the-earth, smart, hardworking people district. And it's a nice, a beautiful combination of city and rural, um, city and out county. And these people are thinkers, and they're doers, and they're producers, and they want someone to work for them. Now, um, I'm, I get concerned, and I really didn't 
set out to run for office. I've been in business for over 30 years, a uh, single mom raised my daughter most of her 27 years uh, by myself, which, of course, helps from family and friends, and that's how it always is done. Um, but I didn't set out to be in politics, but I couldn't keep my hands out of it because I love my community, and I was raised in a family where you're always responsible for what's going on around you. You have to weigh in. You have to do your part to not just give back but contribute while you're there, while you can, in the ways that you can. So I've been politically active on the side of working full-time and being a mom. I've taught my daughter to do the same thing. And you do what you can to provide for needs that you see when you see them. So now, um, after helping many others, um, including Tom Barrett, run for their races, um, it was time for me to get involved And simply because I had so many folks ask me, beg me, it's your time. You're the one. You're the one who's strong enough. You have a, a business background, plus you understand politics. Um, you're stable financially. You're stable your health uh, in many aspects, and you're ready to run. And they know how hard I work. I run hard, and I, I, do, the, I do what's necessary to win. So I will win. You mentioned Tom Barrett. Uh, he was a two-term state representative in the 71st District <laughs> until 2018. He gave up the seat to run for and be elected to the state Senate. That's why the seat was open two years ago. Um, And I guess I just want to ask you, uh, going forward, what is your philosophy? I mean, how would you describe uh, how you would approach, for instance, right now, obviously the dominant issue is the coronavirus and Governor Whitmer's reaction to it, response to it, way of dealing with it. Uh, What is... For instance, she doing right? What's she doing wrong? How would you handle things if you were in her shoes? Or how do you think the legislature should be responding to this? Well, it's, it's a, it'll, it'll take a while to really get into all the weeds with that. But in general, when this started out, um, we didn't know how big this virus was, how bad it was. I thought, well, she's taking some prudent measures to secure some safety and I think pretty much everybody was in agreement that we needed to carefully um, look at all the data. Now the data has changed so much. Every day the data changes. And, you know, the peak is over. Models have shown that the numbers are going down, um, and they have been for a month. And um, it's easier to be the armchair quarterback criticizing someone else. So I'm not trying to be overly critical of her, but the shutdown certainly for businesses, has gone on too long, and now we're at risk of an economic disaster. So, number one, just being in the healthcare field for so long, for two decades, um, in a number of different ways, I would not have shut down the healthcare world. I, I just don't we, – we turned into a third-world country in healthcare where people who break their leg couldn't get help for a week. They couldn't even get their, their leg looked at. Now, that causes – potentially permanent damage for walking for the rest of that person's life. Um, many other examples, pacemakers needing to be checked, monitored, potentially changed out. They couldn't get in in time. So we've had some life-threatening problems while we're trying to monitor how big is this virus. Um, I wish there had been a better uh, business healthcare roundtable right at the get-go to discuss these things. I read the other day that 
uh, 56 days after the shutdown, uh, Governor Whitmer put together a business roundtable to figure out the economy in Michigan. I mean, like, why in the world would we not do that right from the, the front end? You know, if scenario A plays out, we do this. If scenario B plays out, we do this. C, D, you know, all the different possibilities. We've got great business people in this state, some of the best in the whole world. And I don't know, to my knowledge, they were not invited to the round ta- the current roundtable, and they were never introduced to the idea of coming to the table right from the get-go. So I don't know that I would have shut everything down healthcare-wise because there's many, many needs that are still critical and life-threatening. Um, but certainly to have some COVID centers that were specialized, they had all the gear at those locations, I think those would have been um, prudent ways to, to go through this. And we've got pockets where we have heavy population and then really thin population. And we could have looked at just having centers where they were really prepared where the heavy population, like Detroit, which, you know, that's probably why they have more cases. They have more population. Um, it doesn't always work that way uh, when you look at the whole country, but it's a good reason why it could have been the case in Michigan. Well, Gina Johnson, um, let me let me mention just this. I met you last fall, and at that point, uh, nobody was thinking coronavirus. I mean, it wasn't even on the radar, right? Right. Uh, you decided to run. So I just ask you, independent of coronavirus, uh, what are some of the other things you feel you need to attack or that should be addressed in the legislature and that you would do as representative if you're elected? I always am looking at the economics of an area um, and how it affects the family. I have a motto, Michigan Families First, and I I picked that because what affects the family, if it's bad, it tears up the whole community. Um, And what's good for the family usually reflects well on the whole economy of the the greater county, state, the region. So some of the the hindrances against family is burdensome taxes. licensing fees that are so high and regulations that are increasing on the folks that just own small businesses, these are burdens on them being able to take care of themselves, pay their bills, keep their homes, um, and take care of their children. And certainly when two parents work really hard to just scrape by, then where's the time to take care of the children, to oversee their education, oversee their safety, uh, supervise them, it plays out in the community in many, many different ways. Our education, math and reading scores, which I don't always give all the credence to scores. Those can be, you know, they can have integrity and they can have some faulty areas too when you look at them. But there's, there's a problem when our children grow up and they can't read. At third grade level, they should be reading. Um, so I would like parents to not have so much economic burden and time spent just surviving, so they have time to oversee their ed- the education of their children and partner with our good teachers in this state. We've got great teachers. We have great education in many different um, avenues, and we have choice in education. And parents need to be a part of that. They need to be able to have the energy and the time to oversee it and work with whatever whoever the children needs a little extra uh, tutoring or assistance. And then it, it also plays into safety. When kids are well supervised and families are intact, the safety increases in a a region 
and the violence goes down and they partner well with the law enforcement and it's just a peaceful community. Gina Johnson, honestly, I want to go on longer, (laughs) but we're out of time. But listen, uh, sounds like you've got some very concrete objectives. Thank you for being our guest, Gina Johnson, 71st State House District Republican. Thank you. We'll be back next week with more.